I'm Michael. And I'm Katie. And this is Missing History, where each week we bring you and ourselves a story about a woman or someone who identifies as female that we want to know more about. We'll share some stories, talk about it, and maybe get a little mad at the patriarchy. Maybe more than a little mad. Okay! Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. Hello, hello. Hi. I need to put a little tape over this red eye of death here on this microphone because it is right in my peeper. <laughs> and it makes it really annoying. So all I want to look at is you guys. I'm sure I got bits and bobs over here in my craft cor- my craft room. <laughs> <laughs> craft room slash office. From, from my extra bedroom that's not full of furniture, which is why it sounds like an echo chamber. <laughs> but I got my little pillows up to suck up some sound i got our associate producer on the floor who looks so comfy that i'm very jealous and um i got a two screen situation happening so bit of an upgrade i guess i think sounds like we're ready to rock yeah and then i got my little i have a little um shelf thing off the side of my desk that has now (laughs) become a uh place where i put my wine so it's working out jealous about the wine out. right now you're welcome it's good some apothic red they don't sponsor us but they're delicious it's a great table wine if you're going to a party um should we apologize for any acoustic things or did you make it sound so good that we don't need to worry about it jen you made it sound great i'm sure yep okay great <laughs> in so, case we do again, need to apologize yeah we're sorry i don't know I don't know why. Maybe it's because I moved, but I'm just very aware of the fact that we're doing this in three ti- in three states and three time zones right now. So this yeah. is a dedication to craft. I think it really it speaks to our desire to to produce quality content for our listeners. Yeah, yeah. Um, I even got a box to put my microphone on, so it's at my mouth level. So you're welcome, audience. <laughs> That's going late. Oh, I can hear you so well. Um, when does this come out, Michael? Do we have a theme for this one? There's no theme this week. There's no theme this week. Is that your theme? Uh, that is my theme. Both of my women that we're recording this weekend. Oh, that's good. Okay, so we don't have a theme. No theme. So we're just going to jump back in. Our theme is that we are spanning the United States, the three of us, to bring you this podcast in three different time zones. So you're welcome. Because this is hard to do. Not even scheduling-wise, but just like moving your life across country you too man because you've been in how many states in the past like four weeks um in the past four weeks a district of columbia and then three states that's stupid i would agree with you like okay and just always a different location and just like how do we i i'm surprised i haven't lost my microphone yet Um, (laughs) me too (laughs) so because i um uh wasn't prepared <laughs> for our last episode i am gonna go first as penance but you said that i like to go first so maybe i do i don't know in this moment i don't because it feels like it's been a while since i've done this so bear with me where did i hear about this lady i had some good story about it um one of my podcasts that i listen to is called unspooled uh it's from earwolf it's really good they go through the afi top 100 movie list um week by week and they they roll a 100 sided die to see what movie they're going to do the next week 
And um, the latest one they did, they ended up talking about... I don't even remember what the movie was, but in the conversation afterwards, they talked to a lady who works for Turner Classic Movies, and she started talking about um, silent films and the work of women directors in the era of silent movies. Oh, it was Sunset Boulevard they were talking about, which is all about faded silent stars who seek fame again. It's a great movie. Um, But a lot of the conversation they had at the end was about, you know, women in Hollywood at this time and the fact that they had so much power in the early start of the movie industry. And they, she dropped like three names that she um, had studied as a film historian. And so I was like, Oh, I don't know any of those names. So it's time to look them up. And it was, she was compared to DW Griffith in the anecdote of this woman's story, which I don't know if you know D.W. Griffith. I don't. I feel like I'm going to learn a lot of things this episode. I mean, we're not going to dwell on him because he has plenty of people that do that for him. So he made some movies. Um, okay, so we're in the early 20th century, uh, late 19th century, really. We're getting out of the Victorian times. Um, Florence Lois Weber is born in 1879 in Allegheny, Pennsylvania. She's Pennsylvania the second. Pennsylvania represent. Uh, yeah. Where is Allegheny? Do you know? Um, It is in western Pennsylvania. Okay. She's the second daughter of George and Mary Weber. Um, They're German heritage people. Uh, Her dad was an upholsterer and decorator for the Pittsburgh Opera House. Very cool. Quite a niche job. I don't know if that's all he did, but that was definitely one of his areas that he... um, exposed his daughters to like he had to bring all this furniture and get it revamped for all the like fancy butts that had to sit in fancy chairs at the opera house (laughs) so his children were um consequently exposed to the arts throughout their childhood she seems to have taken to like her christian faith in a really proactive way this is a time of christianity being um a bit of a progressive political movement in that kind of interesting way of the late 19th century like I don't know if you ever see um you know oh I can't think of the movie right now but uh women's issues are tied in with Christianity as women are being a moral force there's a lot of uh complicated and maybe flawed ideas now that you look at it back then but of being um just and good to your fellow man and what I well no I'm not gonna say that because that's gonna be negative but um a different form of popular Christianity than maybe we would see now. Mm-hmm. Like the temperance um, movement's a pretty good example of like a, yeah. a women's the driven. Evil, the evils of alcohol and like the, that's all tied up with the suffrage movement. The The temperance movement um, and the right to vote are very much two lines on the same road. And uh, she's growing up in this philosophy. Her mother's pretty progressive. Her father's pretty progressive. So she becomes a missionary of sorts in her youth um, and through her church groups. She loves the activism. She loves reaching people. She loves um, conveying a message through this kind of rhetoric of the time. Because I think one could argue that the really good preachers of the time were quite theatrical and quite um, animated and energetic and sought or at least some of them sought to evangelize in a in an entertaining way so um but she genuinely believes all these kinds of ideals of the progressive era of the early or the turn of the century 
Um, she's, she, uh, she puts her money where her mouth is. She seeks to improve um, women's situation. Uh, uh, and there's stories of her like going to sex workers in brothels and trying to the, get them out into a better like field of work. Like, this isn't the only way for you. You can, like, how can I help you sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> and then at some point in her youth, she decides that her kind of fascination with the arts and her missionary work can be together because how else do you reach a bunch of people? Um, oh, this is a really good way of doing that. People seek out entertainment. So what if a morality was, was hidden in your work as well to then spread good messages and good Christian values, right? So we're sure she's not a character from Anything Goes, right? It's a little Anything Goes. It's a little Guys and Dolls. Okay. With it. Yeah. Okay. It is very Sister Sarah. Yeah. With a big bass drum um she's got she's quoted as saying as i was convinced the theatrical profession needed a missionary the best way to reach them was to become one of them so i went on the stage filled with great desire to convert my fellow men i mean it's all right there she wants to help others she has this talent as an artist so she's like let's do it she had been trained as a concert pianist and she was an amateur opera singer and um she kind of is met with this old, this different kind of issue of once she's been on the stage to some people of her faith, she is considered disreputable. And then she's like, oh, I don't want to be that. So then she goes and tries to use her art, not for financial gain, but she does like charity work. She entertains in hospitals and for prisoners. And there's even cases of her going to military barracks and like old fashioned USO kind of stuff. So she's like trying to be philanthropic and like walk the walk that she's preaching. And is this a period where, like, acting is still that kind of, like, not, it's not a celebrity profession yet, it's still very much that kind of, like, we're a little bit distanced from them because we're a little bit worried that they might be... Well, it's that, it's that hypocritical thing of, like, oh, we're gonna look down on you and yet everyone will consume your art voraciously Mm. because we love it. So, like, we will both love it until we decide that you are not morally right and then we're gonna say that you're disreputable and terrible. While massive consumption is happening of, like, vaudeville is starting to really, you know, thrive. Mm -hmm. And and there's also some legitimacy of, like, the fancy rich people all attend the arts and patron the arts. So, like, mm, hmm. We as people don't know what we want until it's, yeah. Eerily similar. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't like hearing what actors have to say if it's political, but by God, we would love a political movie that, you know, Ron Howard and Tom Hanks make. But the second they get out there and say who they're voting for, we want them to shut up. Um, anyway, wine break. Hold on. Holding. <laughs> okay, so um, 1904, she meets Phillips Smalley. Not Philip, Phillips, which I hate. <laughs> Philip Smalley. We're going to call him Smalley. They get, um, they meet, they have a great day, and the next day they get engaged. It's 1904. They've got no time, apparently. Um, he's None at all, all she's ever wanted. Next day, they're going to make it legit. Four months later, they tie the knot. So she is now a married lady. Um, and Smalley, how old would she be at this point? Is this, do we have categorized the- Age appropriate. It's 1904. She was born in 1879. I can't do math. 26. In this moment. She's great. She's she's a proper 26. I think he was like 10 years older than her. 
she's fine. She's that's one for the ages where she's married above the age of like 14. Okay. <laughs> um Smalley's fine. Uh he's fine. He he's an actor. She liked him. I don't know why, but she did. So he's great. Um <laughs> we're going to have some pepper on him later. Don't worry about it. Um he is an actor. He has a great gig touring, so he does what um, what he's got to do to provide for his wife, and he goes out on the road to continue his, like, good gig. And she's like, oh, well, you know, what do I do? I've been, like, a missionary. I've been an actress. Now I have to be a wife. I don't really like this. So I am not sure how they got there, but they're in New Jersey. She looks across the street. I'm... I'm gilding this story. Like, this is not based on... I'm, 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 tell, I'm telling you a tale, so that's entertaining. Okay. Fantastic. Um, she looks across the street. She's like, oh, sweet, a film studio. That's kind of like acting. Let me go check it out. And it's Gaumont Film Studios. It's a French company. That's why I can't say it. And Herbert Blanchet is uh, the production manager there. He's a fascinating cat because he is married to a woman named Alice Gee. Alice Gee is this renowned film auteur, I don't know, early pioneer of these daguerreotypes that become motion pictures and all that nonsense. And she and he have taken their French company, moved to New Jersey, and have started making films over there. Alice had recently had some had a baby. There, she's trying to raise the young kid while she's still really, you know, she's a little toddler. She's being a stay-at-home mom. Herbert's like, babe, I got it. I'm going to go run the studio while you take care of our baby because you want to, and I'm a cool guy for 1904. Imagine <laughs> that. I also won't try and steal your thunder. I will just be the production manager. I'm not going to try and, like, be the artistic director like your title is. We are a great partnership. Relationship goals. Um, <laughs> Amazing. They were super successful, and they had just in, uh, invested like a hundred thousand dollars into like uh, crazy production facilities in New Jersey. So Lois, our gal Lois, is like, I don't have kids. I don't. I'm bored at home. Phillips is farting around in Nebraska or whatever, doing whatever play he thinks is important. So I'm going to go over and be an actress for this like cool. French people. I'm, I'm down for this. Um, and uh, she goes in. She's in these little bit pits. Uh, it's important to note this is like 19... It's like not even 1910 yet. It's not even... You know, it's the aughts, right? So they're not making films. They're making shorts. They're making... They call them... They would write scenarios and then film them. Just little scenelets. Ten-minute plays, if you will. Fascinating. Um, yeah, so they're just, they're A, figuring out how to even make films to begin with. So it's all new and all kind of exciting. Um, within days of her being an actress for this company, Herbert's like, you're great. You're just like Alice. You can direct. Get in here. You're going to direct some movies. Um, I think it's also important to note that directing was maybe not the mystique of importance that it soon became. Okay. Because everything was new and innovative and important to the making of a film. You didn't have Hitchcock's yet because the form itself was still so pliable and so unknown. You know what I mean? You didn't have those egos showing up yet. Or maybe you did, but they were... 
they didn't have quite like Coupled the scope with, that they would later. Yeah, they didn't they didn't centralize power yet in the same mm-hmm. way. There's no studios, there's no giant MGM conglomerates, there's no millions of dollars. So um Lois says, I grew up in a business when everybody was so busy learning their particular branch of the new industry that no one had time to notice whether or not a woman was gaining foothold. There isn't even a Hollywood yet. They're all in New Jersey of all places. So they're making their films. She's a director. There's stories of her like operating the camera, figuring out how to light the things, um, putting the costumes together, starring in the films, writing the films, editing them, figuring out how to edit them. Do you splice the thing or do you tape it together? And then how do you tint and how do you do effects and all of this stuff? Um, well, oh, Wait, here's a whole little list I wrote. Writes her plays, puts them in story form, chooses and contracts her own players, operates a camera, um, is in some of her own scenes, plans her own lighting effects, shoots with the still camera, plunges occasionally into chemicals, her developing laboratory, writes her own titles, inserts, and prologues. She knows how to operate a film printing machine, is her own film cutter, splicer, and editor, plans her own publicity and advertising campaigns for her finished pictures. And she's in her, she's also her own business manager and signs all the checks. Like she is literally everything start to finish. She does it all. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, Hubs comes home from touring and uh, is like, oh, what a sweet meal ticket. Let me jump on this train and work with you. So they become kind of a duo act of co-directors on films. They make a bunch of short 10 minute films together for different companies. They kind of jump around. And um, they usually produce one short film a week, which is, like, quite the output of the time. Um, As, like, film becomes more of a typical thing, or, like, there becomes, like, a a craft to it. There becomes, like, steps you take to make the thing. Um, There's a great deal of innovation all the time. And... They have to be super innovative because there isn't a way to do dialogue yet, right? So how do you convey a story without the character speaking? So there's a lot of nuance and, like, how much camp you do. Like, how expressive do you get? They also can't zoom in on faces yet. They have to do very distant things. Mm -hmm. So you are kind of, like, watching a play. And you can't get in there and see the sweat and stuff like you can in later films. So she makes one of her big deal 1913. She makes a big deal 10-minute film called Suspense. I watched it. It's on YouTube. It's great. Um, It's also terrible because she depicts a woman at home with her baby who's being stalked by a prowler. Basically, the the synopsis is um, this really ungrateful maid quits this house at the beginning, leaves the key under the mat outside, I don't, why? Why wouldn't you leave it in? Whatever. She, like, locks out, locks it, puts the key under the mat, which is a plot point later. Lois, who plays the wife, is up with her infant, doesn't realize the maid has left. So she looks out the window and she sees this little, like, um, what they call a tramp in the credit card of, like, a vagrant, transient person, no good. And he, like, discovers the key and then, like, creeps into the house and she is alone with her baby because the the maid left what will a woman do so she calls her husband on the old-timey phone with like the earpiece in the mouth and she's like 
babe, you gotta come home. And he like rushes home. And then it gets really good because as he rushes home, he doesn't care. So he punches a guy and steals his car so that he can zoom home way faster because not everybody has a car. The cops chase him in a whole kind of separate, separate kind of action sequence. You're like watching the cars run. Like, yeah, it's intense. And, um, she like faints on a bed and it's not very exciting, but the prowler is like trying to like get in the room and he's creepy. And then the husband swoops in and the cops are like, Oh, it's because of your wife. Oh, okay. Free pass. Don't worry about it. Glad your baby's okay. And they arrest the guy and leave. Sorry. Spoilers. Um, <laughs> but even me watching this 1913, it's 107 years old at this point. No, six hundred and six years old at this point. She does a couple innovative things. The one that I noticed was, which I don't know if she was the first to do it, but I could still tell it was pretty interesting. Is like, as the car chase is happening, she's behind the shoulders of the driver. So you mm. get the point of view of the driver chasing the other car. And then he, she cuts to the front car and you see the car in the um, rear view mirror or like the side mirror. You can see the car reflected in there from the guy's driving's point of view where he's like, oh, I'm gonna... And then the other crazy um, innovative thing that she did was she was the first director ever to show um, in the telephone call, she has the husband in the bottom portion of the screen, the wife in the top right section of the screen talking on the phone, and then you see the tramp in the top left creeping up towards the room. So you have the simultaneous story in a split screen being Mm -hmm. shown. Also, like the first telephone call with a split screen to like convey the two sides of the call. Very cool. So it was like very innovative of the time. It was a big deal. Um, and it was like, it was a good little, you know, a big, a lot of action, uh, you know, rising action, climax, you know, resolve. Mm-hmm. It was all the good stuff. It was a good scenario. I enjoyed it. I was entertained. <laughs> um, it wasn't too camp. I mean, she does faint, but it was like, nothing was too like, you know, Mm-hmm. Mustache twirling or anything. Yes. Um. Car chase. Yeah, that was crazy. Um. The other thing I found interesting is that the house that they lived in, like, didn't. You don't think about this, but like, there was no driveway. There was no like path to the home, which I don't know if it's because of the location they were shooting on or like that's what you would have as a house in like outside of town. Is you wouldn't have a way for a car to get up there if you don't own a car. You would think you would have a way for, like, a horse and buggy to get up, but it definitely didn't look like that in the film. Anyway, mm-hmm. you guys watch it. You let me know what you think. It's a little weird. Um, yeah, at this time, she is now living in California with her husband. Universal is about to be built as, like, a big studio. Um, for some context, Cecil B. DeMille hasn't even made a picture yet. He's going to be a big deal in a little bit. And um, she works for Universal for a little bit and works independently, different companies. Bosworth Studios is one of them. She tries to seek out any place that can give her more freedom to do all the things that she wants to do. Mm-hmm. She um, also uses film as a way to get back to her kind of evangelical past. She wants to make moral films. She wants to make films that push her particular values and like seek to improve the lives of other people. So she sees the future of movies as being just as important as theater, as literature, as all the other popular art forms of the time, which it wasn't. If we think about it, it had to be 
credible. It had to, um, it had to, film was such a new thing. It was like a novelty for a really long time. So all of the early pioneers had to legitimize it in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways while others didn't care to. So she's definitely one of these voices of the early days trying to be like, no, this is a art form. This is a craft. This is a skill. We seek to do it. Well, we seek to, you know, just -hmm. because we're not speaking, doesn't mean we aren't conveying really important truths about people and stuff. Um, she has very progressive ideals on some levels and then on others, not so much. Some of the ones that she's progressive on is uh, women's suffrage, access to birth control, um, education, workers' rights, and she's anti-child labor. Um, I love that so, that, or I, I hate, should be more clear, that that is like an issue with like a pro-con stance still at this point. It's like, oh no, I'm, I'm very pro-child labor still. Yeah, yeah. Or it's just like I'm I'm not. I guess it's more like people are were apathetic maybe or like children weren't revered in the same way that we definitely understand them to be now of being little little sponges for the world. It was just seen as like a different way to have cheap or free labor. Anyway, um so all of her films kind of deal with these issues. They aren't these big sandals and what are, they, what are they called? Sandals? Sword and, and Sandals? Sword and Sandals movies that other guys were making. She definitely is doing smaller, intimate films, um, family dynamics, more nuanced subject matter. Uh, she's the first American woman to direct a full-length feature. She does a production of The Merchant of Venice in 1914. Oh, And, cool. yeah, uh, her big movie that she makes is called The Hypocrites. And... Um, she makes it in the same year that D.W. Griffith makes Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation was over three hours long and is super problematic to watch today. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I, Have you ever seen it? No, but I know cool. enough about it. It's it's a, a sympathetic view of the American Confederacy. Yeah, and my understanding is it's kind of credited with helping spark the rebirth of the KKK. Oh, 100%. Oh, 100%. I think it's also one of these movies where, like, African-American people can't be seen on screen with white people. So there's a lot of blackface. There's a lot of uh, horrible stereotypes of African-Americans and I believe in particular African-American men as um, predators of white women. It's problematic. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. And so it's sort of like, oh, thank goodness this white man could see. It's not good. Oh, let's not give it any more credit. He gets credited with making the first movie. It's a terrible movie. So like all American history, <laughs> it's gray. It's not black and white. It's very gray. Yay, he made a movie. Yay, he made a, a long narrative movie and, and took storytelling to a new era. But he also perpetuated horrible ideas about what it means to be an American and it was Woodrow Wilson's favorite movie anyway she makes her own movie (laughs) full length feature called The Hypocrites it's the story of a preacher who is fed up with the hypocrisy in his congregation and he falls asleep and then he is led through the world through time and space by um, a personification of truth And this was very scandalous because Lois decided that the personification of truth would be naked truth, and that would be a woman. And so she has, I don't know if you've ever seen those kind of like 
effects from the teens in film where it kind of looks like they're transparent mm-hmm, mm-hmm. people yeah. and there you can tell there's like a layering of the film mm-hmm. to show how they so that's what she's walking through she's very mysterious and um takes this preacher on this journey and shows a mirror and holds a mirror up to the truths that are people and he has to kind of weigh this reality um but it's 1915 in America. So what can't we handle? A women's body. And um, people are outraged. And by people, I mean repressed dudes. Because ironically, <laughs> Michael, everyone went and saw this movie. They loved it. They thought it was a great film. She made a butt ton of money. And yet at the same time, the mayor of Boston wanted clothing painted on every single frame of the freaking movie because he couldn't handle this chick walking through it naked wow she basically looks like a statue that you would see in any park i mean or like museum but he just can't handle it and i also find it interesting because it's all female gaze it's like she's not titillating she's not sexualized she's genuinely just nude and it's she's all in like these grecian poses of like how you would see um Leonardo da Vinci. What's that one where she's in the shell? Which one is that? Oh. With the I hair. Mean... Aphrodite being born or something. She looks like that. Where she's just like, mm, I have long hair. And I'm pointing you at things. It's just not sexual at all. But he makes it creepy. Of course. And uh, it doesn't matter because she makes bank on it. Because go figure. Everyone's fine. And is not corrupted morally by seeing this movie. <laughs> And they kind of were probably like, oh, how refreshing, like something new. Um, it was called Daring and Artistic. Um, she also does this crazy long tracking shot with the hundreds of extras. Like she does, she, she makes a big, crazy, good movie. Um, she gets all the credit, which is kind of shocking. Um, she goes back to Universal. <laughs> they, pay, they begin to pay her $5,000 a week, which is unheard of at the time. Wow. Um, she makes another movie, which is a little problematic, called Where Are My Children, where she has a very interesting take of believing in birth control and the access to information about family planning, while also utterly shaming and being, um, uncompromising on the, uh, idea of abortion. So, she kind of condemns abortion as a fickle choice that deprives people of children and does a lot to I find it interesting that she makes a movie that both pro-choice and pro-life people now would like appreciate because she also is like we need to plan children and we need to like be proactive about teaching women about their bodies also let's shame them reprehensibly for the decisions they make anyway or and let's show it through the view of this man who doesn't get to have babies. Anywho. Um, <laughs> uh, okay. That one was not my favorite movie that she made. But, you know. We gotta learn about it all. Uh, she get, she makes her own studio via Universal called Lois Weber Productions. Um, she's uh, at one of at least a dozen successful women filmmakers at the time in 1916. They are camera operators. They're writing the screenplays. They're editing. They're directing. She produced over 30 films and um, repeatedly would uh, tackle social issues of the day. She talks about capital punishment, 
drug abuse, poverty, um, yeah, she just kind of tackles everything that she genuinely cares about as a person. Um, however, post-World War One, America is in need of a little escapism and is maybe not as enticed by those kind of morality plays as they once were, and her popularity starts to fade um, and then this is where we hate Mr. Smalley because he decides to leave her after he had a bunch of affairs and they get divorced in 1922. She clearly dick. relied on him in a profound way, which I can't understand. Um, and so when he leaves her, she sort of has a breakdown and rec- becomes a recluse in a lot of ways and stops working and she retreats into herself. So clearly, like, I I think it's a little... The people that I... Or the, the voices that I heard talk about this definitely cited, like, Philip Smalley left her and she became a recluse and was mortified. But I think he leaves her after her film career goes bust. And I think maybe the domino effect of, like, all of the stability she's had in her life till then, mm-hmm. the thing that she was going to create her life... Or make her life... Oh, my God. What am I trying to say? The thing that she had dedicated her life to in two ways, abandon her, in her view, would make you maybe implode a little bit. Yeah. Um. She takes time away. She does a little more film work as a writer in her um, later years. But she does get a little embittered and loses her sort of zeal for the craft. She... um ends up passing away at the age of 59 from a bleeding ulcer which they now think was maybe Crohn's disease but undiagnosed and affected her for years mm-hmm. but over her career she had directed 40 feature films and hundreds of short films and um, due to I mean just the lack of awareness and most films of that silent era were lost because of various reasons people would burn them and, and or they'd get lost and they just weren't prized in the same way or seen as anything to keep record of. So mm-hmm. a lot of her work was lost from the era. There's a lot of times where um, the credit for the films is given to her husband because they are listed as co-creators on a lot of films, but they think now Looking back, like she continued to make work after he left her, but he didn't really produce anything after they got divorced. So they think that's maybe a misrepresentation of who is really fostering the ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, Shelley Stamp is a film historian who's really like champion Lois Weber as she has discovered her. And then this lady from Turner Classic Movies, which I have to look up her name. She was pretty great because she, and I think Shelley Stamp make a really great case of her, of Lois Weber being at the same level of DeMille or Griffith. And yet when we talk about silent films, we think, we definitely think of the comedian men of like Chaplin and Buster Keaton, but like mm-hmm. the director man becomes this character that then is fed through the 40s and 50s. And I mean, DeMille kept making movies his whole older life. So she was just as innovative and, you know, did, did, some, did some good work on film and saw, it, saw the future of film as something to invest in, which I found very admirable. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she showed films that, you know weren't 
necessarily all about like the spectacle of movies. They were about people and personal things that I found, you know, kind of interesting. Especially yeah. as you know, even in the last year or so, or with the Oscars coming up, like what was it? Um, who won the Best Actress last year? Frances McDormand's speech last year. When she got up and she made all the women nominees stand up in her speech, and she was just like, "Yeah, I'm celebrating." I don't know. I was just thinking about women in film and recognition of that or lack thereof. And I had heard about silent movie directors for a long time and how there was like a kind of wave of no one really caring. Like, just get the work done. We don't care who does it. Um, such an equalized playing field at the start of it. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting you should frame it like that, because that was something when we were talking about our female computer scientist a while back, that it seems like there's this trend of, like, an ind- as an industry is starting out, where it's not super prestigious, women have the opportunity to be a part of it at all levels, but then once men realize there's the potential to make a lot of money and get a lot of fame and sort mm. of recognition from it, they sort of push women out of those roles, and then mm-hmm. you have to do this sort of second wave of quote-unquote bringing them back in Mm. when they were there at the ground level and got forced out yeah so that's lois weber sounds awesome early pioneer of american movie making thank you so much you're welcome michael confession yes I peeked at the Google Doc of who you're going to do next. Oh, no. Um, And I know some things, but I'm so excited about what I don't know about her because I definitely know precious little. Amazing. Which is disappointing because she is phenomenal. Okay. Yeah. I'm so excited. So I was getting breakfast a couple of days ago with one of our diehard Missing History fans. I think we have about five of them. Your (laughs) mom? But my mom, were you having dinner with my mom? <laughs> I was not. Although it does seem we have a fairly large concentration of fans in Montana. Things I'm discovering. Oh, oh, that's true. Montana's um, been good to us. But this was with um, our fan Anna, and mm-hmm. she was doing the thing that everyone does when I mention this podcast, which is suggest all of these really cool women that I've never heard of that she thinks is really interesting and would be worth doing an episode mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. And I was like. Amazing. Take out my phone, write them down. Then I, you know, go back to my computer. I'm like, okay, have to start with this one because she, she's awesome. She's also mm-hmm. really complicated, yeah. but she's really sort of groundbreaking. Um, her name's Hattie McDaniel, um, and she is a African American film actress in the 30s and 40s. She is the first African American and the first woman of color to win an Academy Award. Um, yeah, she did. Which she wins in 1940 for Best Supporting Actress in Gone with the Wind. Um, and with the Oscars coming up in a little bit, yeah. figured she'd be appropriate to talk Topical. about now. Um, yeah. Are we going to talk about what role she won that for? We are. And we're going to talk okay, about good. the really... Uh, have you watched Fascinating. it? Fascinating. I have Gone not. I have to admit, I've never seen Gone I... with the Wind. Okay. Go- okay. Okay. We can save it till we get there in the okay. timeline. Great. And I, I have think... a lot of feelings about Gone with the Wind. 
I'm, it seems like just about everyone has a lot of feelings about that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to admit that like early film is one of the like many glaring gaps in my cultural knowledge. I know oh, really? almost nothing about early you can film, skip early Birth Hollywood. Of a Nation, I'll tell you that right now. Um, so I learned a lot. I mean, you should watch somebody talk about Birth of a Nation rather than watch Birth of a Nation. I know someone's gonna come at me for that somewhere. Um, kind of like my dad who told me I needed to watch it. I understand why you say that. I really just don't want to (laughs) as a human. I think I got it from the context of really smart people telling me what's in it. That's a horrible excuse to not expose yourself to something that should teach you something. But I just, oh, I don't want to be that miserable for that long. You know what I mean? I'd rather hear a really smart person tell me why. Oh, bless you. Thank you. It's, It's a horrible indictment of like white people of the turn of the century. Anyway. Let's keep going. Let's. We've spent too much time on that movie. I. It just makes me so mad. Okay, great. Yeah. Um. So Hattie McDaniel is born Hattie. on June tenth, eighteen ninety-five. Uh, wow. Her parents are Susan and Henry McDaniel. Um. Both of her parents are former slaves. Her father fights for the Union Army during the Civil War. Um. And her we, mother is like a singer. One... Yeah. So it's this point in like American history knew. where people's parents lived through slavery still you just blew my mind michael yeah that colors that movie so differently now it really does and when we get there she has a quote about it that is so interesting to dig into about that okay okay i'm gonna shut up it's your time sorry go ahead um uh Born in the South, but the family moves to Denver pretty early on in 1900. Um, and so she grows up in the American West. She's Denver in 1900. Denver in 1900, which having okay. recently <laughs> flown in and out of Denver 2019, yeah. seems like it's a bit of a, a robust frontier lifestyle at that point still. Yeah, you're... Yeah. Um, she's sort of part of this whole family of performers. So a lot of her siblings, of which she has 12 siblings um are performers and so she in a way kind of has to stand out from them and does um she very early on displays a talent for public speaking and for singing um she wins a competition at age 15 hosted by the women's christian temperance union hey uh, they're back they're this back is theme. Um, sister suffragettes and like temperance yeah Okay, it's a big time. It is. Um, And so this is one of the ways that they're trying to um, encourage their particular type of morality um, is they host these speaking competitions where you speak on a topic related to temperance. Mm. Um, Hattie wins, um, and she uses that victory to convince her parents to let her drop out of school and start performing full-time, which they do. Um, They're... Dad and her brother are both in a traveling vaudeville act. Um, and so she joins the family company and starts traveling with them. Um, in addition to performing, um, both acting and singing, she also writes um, mostly songs for the company. Um, and she also pokes fun at racial stereotypes. So she performs in whiteface often as part of her <laughs> act. Um, <laughs> what? Which, what does that look like? I'm, I don't know. It was not something that I was f- familiar with, but makes perfect sense when you think about it. It's sort of the, is that reverse um, 
of the blackface tradition. There's a really good sketch of um, that Eddie Murphy did on Saturday Night Live in the 80s where he puts on white face and goes, he does it under the guise of like a news investigative journalism thing. And he like puts on white face and goes into business and like does the white. It's pretty funny. It holds up, <laughs> I'll say. It was pretty funny at the time. So that's all I'm thinking of is just like a super buttoned up horrible waspy person yeah and i'm sure it's sorry i don't mean to offend those people you're fine though come on you're Uh, fine yeah um and i'm sure it was very similar um they're of course performing um for black audiences because the vaudeville circle circuits at this time were segregated um they love that then hmm that'd be that would be hilarious wouldn't it Mm -hmm. wouldn't you feel like scared to laugh though i mean i guess not i don't know what would that I've never heard of whiteface before. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Of uh, that time. Do you know what I mean? There's this really excellent dangerous to do. contemporary play called An Octoroon um, that I got to see when I was in California a couple of years ago um, that has a character performing in whiteface. Um, it's really, really interesting. Um, it's obviously a, it's a play about America's racial history, but... It's it continues in sort of what is a long tradition that I didn't know about um, mm-hmm. of poking fun at white people in that particular way. Hmm. Um, and Where were we? We, so we were performing in vaudeville acts. Um, the company does pretty well until her brother's death in 1920 and her father's death in 1922 mm-hmm. means that the family troupe has to stop performing. Um, at that point, she starts performing with George Morrison who's a classically trained black violinist um, who has, because of his race, denied the opportunity to play in all white professional symphonies. Um, and so he has his own traveling act um, and she performs with him primarily as a singer. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time um, in the 1920s, um, she starts performing for radio um, in Denver, but then also recording blues music um, in mm-hmm. both Kansas City and Chicago. Um, she puts out something like 14 blues tracks um, over the course of two years. So she's starting to build a bit of a reputation for herself um, and more importantly is working pretty consistently outside of Denver. Um, And so um, at some point in, I think, either 1928 or 1929, um, she gets cast as a role um, in a touring production of Showboat. Um, which is love Showboat, a hit musical of the time. Um, have you ever seen Showboat? I've never seen Showboat. I knew it. I knew you had. It's there's uh, some good versions out there. Um, they never can cast it quite right at the time, though. Interestingly enough, there's this whole other layer of Showboat in the fact that they're trying to talk about miscegenation and stuff, and that they won't cast a woman of color in that freaking role, and it's really annoying. We'll talk about it later. Okay, keep going. Great. Um, but we do a Lena Horne episode. We'll talk about it. Amazing. Um, and it's going to be interesting because she's also going to get cast in the film production of it later in her career. So it will come back. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, 1929 is not a great year for anyone, um, but particularly for the entertainment industry because uh, the Great Depression basically... I think Herbert Hoover had a great year that year. Didn't he? <laughs> Didn't he have, he had a bunch of... It, he probably um, thought he had a great year. 1920s humor. Sorry. Okay, keep going. <laughs> um, yep. So, so the world vaudeville, is garbage. the world is garbage. Vaudeville is basically destroyed by the Great Depression. Um, 
there's not yep. money, not infrastructure for it anymore. And particularly um, venues catering to African-American audiences are mm-hmm. some of the first to fold. Um, and so even though she had just landed this big role, um, the musical falls apart and she's left in Milwaukee. And the only work she's able to find is as a bathroom attendant at the Madrid Club, which is this music venue in the city. Dang. Um, and because the owner, unsurprisingly, uh, doesn't allow black performers, um, she's working in the bathroom, but some of the patrons know her work um, and convince the owner to let her perform. And she becomes a regular at the club for almost a year. Um, singing? Performing, singing mostly. Um, hmm before she heads out to L.A. in 1931. Um, she has a brother and two sisters who are out there, um, and they're working in the entertainment industry. And so she goes out there to live with them and to give a shot at whatever work she can find out there. Um, she's doing a little bit of um, film work, sort of small bit parts here and there, um, and then is working as a maid or a cook to supplement her income when she's not working on film. Um, But her brother gets her a small radio spot, um, and radio is going to become one of the sort of big parts of her career when she's not doing film. And so she gets this small role in a show called The Optimistic, I think, Donut Hour, but it's spelled D-O hyphen N-U-T, do nut. So not 100% sure how you're supposed to say it. Everybody ate donuts back then. It was probably donut. Okay, that's that's what that I figured. Part but of it's a nutritious breakfast. Weird yeast dough with a cup of Joe and a <laughs> cigarette. <laughs> Gonna go out and make that. Oh my god! Bring home that bacon. All right. Um, and she's playing this character called Hi Hat Hattie, um, who is a stereotypical black maid who is bossy and is described as quote forgetting her place often. Um, so mm. it's the beginning of this sort of central question of her career, um, which is mm-hmm. that she will go on to become an incredibly successful entertainer, but it's often by playing these roles that are very stereotypical, um, yeah. very well, negative stereotypes about and black what women. And consider, what's considered successful at that time is if you entertain and create a profit for white people. Yeah. Like it doesn't matter what, yeah. Ugh. Okay. Um, and this radio show for her is sort of the step into bigger film work. Um, so mostly, again, playing smaller parts as maids or other domestic workers, but is appearing frequently in choruses, in singing roles, um, and in a couple of years has racked up hundreds of uncredited, mostly, roles in film. Um mm-hmm. But in 1932, so just after about a year of working, um, she gets her first credited appearance in The Golden West, um, in which she also plays a maid. Um, And she's going to spend the next two years or so sort of working pretty consistently, but generally playing those kind of smaller roles. Um, Mm -hmm. In 1934, she joins SAG, which is the Screen Actors Guild, um, and starts getting some larger studio roles. Um, At this point in Hollywood history, studios basically control the entire production process. Um, They contract and basically control all of the actors. And so 
if you aren't in with a studio, you're not working. And if you mm-hmm. are in with a studio, you are working. Um, mm-hmm. And so getting picked up by studios is a really important thing for her in order to allow her to start getting some more of those roles. Um, she gets her first major role in 1934, um, playing Aunt Daisy in Judge Priest, which is a movie starring um, Will Rogers and Lincoln Perry. Um, mm-hmm. Perry, his screen name is Stepan Fetchett. Um, he's a black actor who makes his career um, playing these, again, very stereotypical, um, very negatively stereotyped black male characters. Um, and mm-hmm. it's pretty consistently reported that he was really worried about working with McDaniel because he thought that she was trying to take away sort of his work. Um, and he felt mm. very challenged by her, particularly after the director um, expanded her role a couple of times during filming because he liked her so much and thought that she was so talented. Um, and so there's a bit of professional jealousy there. Um, and of course, she is going to go on to have a much more successful career than he did. Um, just doesn't know that yet. <laughs> um, so sort of throughout the early 30s, um, she's playing the sort of archetypical black maid character in a lot of movies alongside some pretty famous actors from the period. So she appears in Alice Adams, um, China Seas, Murder by Television, uh, performing alongside with Gene Harlow, James Stewart, Clark Gable, Ginger Rogers, um, and Catherine Hepburn. Catherine Hepburn. Um, the Catherine Hepburn one I found really interesting. Um, she is in uh, The Little Colonel with Hepburn in mm-hmm. 1935. Um, and, her and Alice per- Adams. And Alice who? Adams is he- Hepburn. Mm-hmm. Um, I think. Yeah, and I think The, the Little Colonel um, is this example of her getting um, sort of negative publicity from both sides. Um, the African-American progressive community, particularly the NAACP, um, is pretty unhappy with her because she keeps taking these negative stereotypical roles and they feel like she is participating in this perpetuation of a negative image Mm -hmm. of black women rather than doing what they would like her to do, which is sort of fighting for better representation. And at the same time, white Southern audiences are unhappy with her because they thought that she kept stealing scenes um, from Catherine Hepburn. That's Uh, quite a feat to do. Yes. Yeah. So it's the she's sort of stuck in this really uncomfortable cool. middle so place. Those two groups don't really talk to each other, do they? They don't. <laughs> and to so realize she, that they don't quite have their brand figured out yet. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, oh, so she's man. getting flack from basically no one is super happy with her, but mm-hmm. at the same time, she is making good money and is constantly being cast and constantly getting work. Um, mm-hmm. And in 1936 is going to appear in the film adaptation of Showboat um, and is playing the role of Queenie. And the song that was written per- specifically for the movie, It Still Suits yeah. Me, um, was specifically incorporated in order to expand her role in the movie. Um, so again, like people recognizing which, her talent and wanting to give her more of a role. And more which movie? Which movie version was she in? She was in was the nineteen colorized version. She was in the nineteen thirty six version, which is the there was a nineteen twenty nine version that was 
um, partially talky, but part- still partially right. silent. And this is the, the first 19- fully talky mm-hmm. version. So then, yeah, that one's real good. And I forgot that she was in it because the guy that sings Old Man River, I forget his part. I'm really sorry about it. Um, but he gets a lot of attention in that movie because he's so political and, like, progressive. Mm-hmm. Robinson? Is that who it is? Um, but I forgot that she's in that. Um, my bad. I've only seen it once because it's black and white and operatic singing in a musical. Not my fave, but mm-hmm. it was of the time, right? And yeah. It is kind of a very interesting musical to watch. The colorized version is interesting because I'm just mortified by the Technicolor costumes. It's very garish and pretty horrendous to watch, but like fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. All right. They Where are. are we at now? We're at 36? 36. Peak time. She's going to get a really good job here in a minute. Good is relative. Sorry. That's not she's quite true. going to get a, a big role. A big job. Big job. Yep. Um, so I think we know where we're headed gone with the Windland. Um, so in the late thirties, um, David Selznick, who is the son-in-law of the head of MGM. So family mm-hmm. connections and who has been working in the movie industry, um, is looking to produce a film adaptation of gone with the wind. Um, and he huge, really, really big stars. Um, but he is leading these two big national searches, one for the role of Scarlett O'Hara, um, the sort of Huge. young Southern belle, um, and the other for Mammy, who is Scarlett's um, house slave. And so the thing that kept popping up in every article was that both of these searches were huge and that Eleanor Roosevelt even writes to Selznick to recommend her maid for the role. Um, so it's something that is sort of reaching the public consciousness just beyond the entertainment industry. Um, well, this book was massive at the time. Like it was, I mean, it was the book of 1936 whenever it was published. And so it's being made immediately after it has been in the like zeitgeist of the time. Like mm-hmm. it was, everyone read it. Everyone read it. It was fascinating. The character, the main character is unlikable and a terrible person. The entire book, it like is written a generation away from it happening. I mean, I could go on and on. It's pretty unique of the time. Um, So everyone knows these characters in a way of like, I don't know, name any film adaptation that people go, the book is better. So, but when you read these descriptions of the book, like I've, read Gone with Wind. When you read the descriptions of the characters, they are freaking Clark Gable and 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 Vivian Lee. Like they are exactly cast so perfectly. Like they mm-hmm. really take the book to it's it's a very faithful adaptation in that way of like they they knew they would screw it up and everyone would be utterly pissed if they did it wrong. So you can tell there's a lot of dedication to how they do it. Mm-hmm. And that was also um, that I like didn't know about at all before diving into this. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's intense. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, like the book itself, unsurprisingly, has some like deeply problematic elements to it. Um, mm. so it's about the Civil War. Can't not right. Yeah. Um, from the from the point of view of white Southern people. Yeah. Who lost a lot of money. So. Oh, not things. great. Anyway. Um. Hmm. But both Clark Gable and Bing Crosby recommend McDaniel for the role. Um, 
and she supposedly shows up to the audition in one of her actual maid uniforms um, and pretty much clinches the part. Um, At the same time that she's auditioning, um, the NAACP um, is sort of fighting with Selznick to try to get some of the more offensive parts of the novel taken out of the movie adaptation. Um, In particular, there's the scene um, where a group of black men attack Scarlett O'Hara and then members of the KKK sort of ride into her defense and are portrayed as these chivalric knights, um, which... Yeah, they do that in the movie. It's just much more like 1930s alluded to. Yes. You know Um, what I mean? And it's not a... I think it's two guys attack her and one is like a white man. mm -hmm. It's like the downtrodden Shantyville, much like Suspense, my little scene-lit... There's, like, tramp dudes that mm-hmm. attack her while she's in her buggy. Yeah. And then I think a black guy saves her, Joe. I don't know. He's also problematic because he's, like, oh, he pines for the days of Tara when he, you know, worked for the fa- It's not good. It's yeah. not good. Um, so, and that, it, it, right, it says something that, like, that is the better version of what could have been. It went through um, a draft or two. Yeah. Um, and then the yeah. other bit is um, the use of the N-word, which both the... So the NAACP was obviously opposed to it. Um, McDaniel refused to use it. Um, and the Hayes Code, which is the sort of morality code um, that is part of the Hollywood productions at this point, um, all sort of banned it. And so even though that the producer Selznick wanted to include it for historical accuracy. Ew, no, he so did. So he said, uh. Um, uh. he uh, was ultimately dissuaded re- from mm. doing that. Okay. Um, Let's not talk about David O. Selznick right now, but he's also a monster of a person that we can talk about off air. Yeah, tell you more about it I'd be super curious because the one little bit I read mm-hmm. about him is not great. He's basically the reason we have the concept of a casting couch as an allusion to stuff. Anywho. Amazing. Glad to know he's on point in all aspects of his uh, career. Yep. Great. Um, what a what a jerk. Yes. I never thought of that until now that that would have even been on the table. Mm-hmm. As like, oh, we should put that in. Yeah. Because now that I think about it, it's not in that movie. Or I don't even remember movies of that time using that language no um and that's in part <laughs> because of the Hayes code forbids its use but also because the NAACP pretty strongly campaigned to get it removed yeah. from most movies um wow um wow yeah I never, okay I never yeah but yeah the okay. the fact that it was sort of on the table it should tell Thank us God. enough um you don't need it <laughs> yeah um and the thing to sort of reference your previous point um at one point, she's giving an interview about the role um, and talks about how her grandmother worked on a plantation like Tara. And so that sort of gave her insight into it, which part is just like sort of that mind-boggling thing of like immediate members of her family were enslaved on plantations. But yeah. is also this sort of her being made more like making white audiences feel more comfortable with black people on screen um, yeah, by sort yeah. of making at least the publicity around the film um, very non-confrontational 
um, yeah. when it came to the issues around race, um, mm. which it, this, it's one of the many struggles with like analyzing her legacy is like how much of that is how she actually felt about the work that she was doing and how much of that was what her producers in the studio sort of had her say about it. Um, and it's hard to tease that out because there isn't really much publicly available yeah. about what her actual feelings on the work was. Yeah. Um, but in keeping on the train of white people being terrible, um, so the film premieres... I got one good one about that story. Keep going. Yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Um, the film premieres in Atlanta in December 1939. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. It's a huge three-day celebration. Um, Atlanta... Obviously, segregated southern city at this point. Um, yeah, they're not happy about it. So McDaniel is not allowed to attend the premiere um, with her castmates. Um, and so because of that, she refuses to attend any of the events. Um, she does attend the premiere in L.A., um, but is not part of the the big one. Um, and the author of Gone with the Wind sends her this shady... Or at least I read it as super shady telegram where she's like, wish you could have heard the applause. I'm like, that's maybe not the best way to be like, do you want a good story about it? Sure. Which I think is reflected on screen by their scenes together. Clark Gable thought that was bullshit and was so pissed and threatened to not go. And she had to convince him to go. Yeah. I, I heard that story too, and he's like, "I'll go because you want me to," but this is bullshit. And she's like, "I know, but it's just gonna make it worse for you. Like, it's not like she had to convince him to go." And I think, you know, their their scenes are good together. I like yeah. them together. Um, and the the thing that I found sort of heartwarming is that she, it's at least from what is reported, had really warm relationships with a lot of these really famous white actors. Um, hosted a party every year at her house um, that Clark Gable would attend every year and sort of a lot of other major Hollywood names from the period would participate in and seemed like mm-hmm. off screen her relationships with those people were pretty warm and cordial um, which yeah. was like sort of a pleasant surprise for me that was not something that I was expecting um, yeah. and in a lot of ways sort of speaks to this sort of Hollywood idea that still is sort of bandied about is the, the idea that like the people in Hollywood are more progressive quote unquote than the people they're making movies for and so the mm. movies level of like progressiveness has to line up supposedly with the audience and not with the people making it it's, it's sort of yeah. the it's still the rationale you get about why more movies don't have all black or all Asian casts um, because you know audiences aren't ready for it um, what audiences ex- yeah Exactly. Yeah. Ugh. Fine. Ugh. It's not fine. I'm just irritated. Okay. Yeah. Um, And so. I mean, here's the thing that here's the thing about Gone with the Wind that I'm thinking of right now. The I I like it for various reasons. I don't like it for other reasons. I I I I have a very conflicted feeling about it because I think it's fascinating in terms of like film and in terms of like how we dealt with civil war fallout as a country because it definitely wrote the narrative for a lot of feelings for the south and in in an interesting way however the more i look at it in an interesting way it's like the main character scarlett o'hara reprehensible terrible person cunning conniving manipulative hateful 
elitist, uh, gross, progressive American, um, very interesting as a character, right? So that was unheard of. Even now, we don't get female characters of that kind of complexity. And the character that Hattie McDaniel played is the only one in that whole movie that knows exactly who Scarlet is and tells her to her face in a lot of ways. And so as an audience member, the more you watch it, the more you're like, ugh, she knows what's going on. And she gets like that Scarlet is a little pill and that's not pure and perfect in any way and it's very problematic and there's a lot of stereotype but at the same time she's the only character on screen besides Rhett Butler who calls Scarlet a you know what she is I mean while still observing the like dynamic that is at play on screen but it is kind of cathartic to watch her just (laughs) scream at Scarlet about how she's stupid it's pretty (laughs) I, I identify with her view of Scarlet the more I watch it. Do you know what I mean? Rather mm-hmm. than like going into Scarlet's point of view. I don't know. Yeah. If I could give it credit for that. I don't know. It's problematic. It's bad. It's it's real bad, guys. I'm just saying like mm-hmm. that's what I get out of it. Maybe that's personal to me. I, I also just didn't. Yeah. Well, it begs it begs to be considered as like very complicated. Yes. Very complicated movie. And it's great because you right there just summarized all of the like critical reception of the movie that I was about oh, to really? do. But there's no Sorry. need because you sort of hit the nail on the head. Like that is sort of the like the central yeah. question in terms of her role in that movie is like how much liberty did she take with making the character sort of stand up to Scarlett Moore to put her in her place more and sort of use as much as she had inside the constraints of her role to sort of make it more brash um, and less stereotypical. Um, Yeah. And that sort of was like the central debate about in terms of her taking that role, whether or not she like did all that she could in the context of it to make it less problematic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I got to watch it with this kind of different awareness of her history, too, because like as a child of people who worked on a place like that, you can't just be like, and I'm going to do what all the white people want me. You know what I mean? I just feel like she had to imbue something inside like to get through it. I mean, I don't know. That's all conjecture. But to do something that close to you. Yeah. That kind of like smack in your face, like this is your history and this is who your family were like in. Yeah. I, I don't know. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, she grew up with people that genuinely knew that life. She knew those stories. I am assuming. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. It, it is, and at the same time, it's, it makes all the sense in the world then why she would get the Academy Award for that role, mm. because she really, I mean, I have not seen the movie, but from everything I've read, sort of, like, takes it and blows it out of the water. Um, and the the f- irony is that another one of her co-stars, Olivia de Havilland, is also nominated for Best Supporting Actress that year for her role in that movie. Yeah, and, and she's really good, too. Yeah. Um, she's annoyingly good. <laughs> Her character's kind of boring, but yeah. 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 Um, hmm. And so McDaniel wins the award. Um, it's 
the ceremony is at the Ambassador Hotel in LA, which at the time does not serve African Americans. And so the producer does has she, to pull all these strings. Go. She does get to go. She has to sit at her own table in the back of the ballroom. It's just her, her date, and her agent. Um, so does is not allowed to sit with the rest of her cast. Um, and is they're the only two people of oh, color at my the God. entire ceremony. Oh, my God. Gotta love oh. America. <laughs> um, and then... Uh, and then she wins. And then she wins. It's just a walk from an, the back. Just a walk from a tiny table. Mm-hmm. What a bunch of jerks. Okay. Yep. Um, and because it is the Oscars, there's footage of her acceptance speech, um, mm. which was really cool to get to watch. Um, and so I'm just going to play a little clip of it now for us to listen to. We'll put a link to the rest of it in the show notes. Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Science, fellow members of the motion picture industry and honored guests. This is one of the happiest moments of my life. And I want to thank each one of you who had a part in selecting me for one of the awards. For your kindness, it has made me feel very, very humble. And I shall always hold it as a beacon for anything that I may be able to do in the future. I sincerely hope I shall always be a credit to my race and to the motion picture industry. My heart is too full to tell you just how I feel. And may I say thank you. And God bless you. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So that was pretty amazing to get to see. Also, like, short, sweet, and to the point, people who win awards. Yes. No one wants to see you thank every teacher you've ever had, okay? Like, just let's all calm down. Exactly. Um, that was really great. Yeah. Um, and that, in a, in a way, sort of marks the pinnacle of her film career. Um, she continues to mm-hmm. appear in films in the 40s, um, including in Disney's now super discredited Song of the South. Yeah. Um, that's a that's quite a dive. Yes. Um, during World War II, um, she performs on military bases and organizes entertainment tours. Um course only for black soldiers as the military is still segregated um and she's not allowed to perform for white soldiers um Uh she also works organizing in her neighborhood in los angeles against restrictive housing um so at this point um in most white neighborhoods in the u.s there are these clauses called racial covenants in housing deeds that stipulate that you're not allowed to sell your home to a person of color a covenant? Um, a covenant, which, like, you just know if that word's floating around, uh, it's not problematic. great. Um, <laughs> the Supreme Court has struck these down at this point, but because America, um, they're still being widely enforced um, mm-hmm. informally um, and occasionally even through the legal system. Um, so when a large number of African-American Entertainers start moving into the West Adams neighborhood in Los Angeles. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the white neighbors sued, um, and the what judge. Are, what? What? Okay. 
Uh, mm-hmm. It happens now. I shouldn't be like mortified. It happens now. It happens. I mean, it's just what are what's what what I okay. I'm done. Yeah. Sorry. Um, there and there's a there's a really excellent book called The Color of Law. If anyone is interested in learning mm. more about America's history of super discriminatory housing policy, that is fascinating and will make you scream out loud as you read it. Um, but. Which is inappropriate to do at a library, but, you know, when the word moves you. It does. Um, And so she takes her neighbors to court. Why are we doing this exercise, Michael? (laughs) We just get mad every week. But I think that's that's, that's the whole point, right? We even say it in the intro. We're going to get mad. Yeah. Um, Okay. Keep going. So goes to court. The judge, like, one day just, like, is walking through the neighborhood. The next day he throws out the case because he rightly so, thinks that restrictive covenants are unconstitutional, which they are. Covenants. You shouldn't have that in law books. It doesn't sound right. No, it does not. Um, So she's doing that. um, And at the same time, she also starts starring in her own radio show, um, which is called Beulah, um, making her the first African-American woman to star in a network radio program. Um, She plays the title character from 1947 to 1952. Um, Of course, it doesn't come without sort of the problematic things. Um, The character is originated by a white man playing an African-American woman. Um, And in 1951, Uh. the U.S. Army (laughs) actually stops broadcasting it. to soldiers serving in Korea because it thinks that the stereotypes the show perpetuates about black men is damaging to unit cohesion and morale. Mm. So it's, I was just thinking about the reviews that guy probably got of like, what range? Mm-hmm. What range he's got? Oh my God, I bet it was terrible. Yeah. So it's, of course, she's a huge star and it's also deeply problematic. Um, she retires another, in like, hashtag for our show. Yeah, I think so. Deeply problematic. Um, okay, she retires. She retires mm-hmm. in 1952 after learning that she has breast cancer. Um, and passes oh. away in October of that year at 59. Oh, in October, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Mm. How weird is that? Didn't Probably not then. That. That's a new thing, right? Yeah. Like, whoa. Um. In her retires and passes in the same year. Mm-hmm. Boom, boom. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. Um, she wishes to be buried in the Hollywood Cemetery, but is refused burial because Don't. of Michael. her race. God. Um, Sucks. <laughs> thousands of people are going to attend her funeral, um, including James Cagney. Um, Although he is the only one of her white co-stars to attend. The rest of them all send flowers, but don't go. Um and then she um, has two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, uh, one for her film work and then a separate one for her radio work. Um, and she's oh, inducted cool. into the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame in 1975. Mm. Um, and the thing that I found really touching um, is that when Monique wins for Best Supporting Actress for her role in Precious in 2010, um, one of the people she thanks in her speech is McDaniel uh, for, Mm -hmm. quote, enduring all that she had to, so I would not have to. Um, Yeah, I thought that was really sweet. Yeah. um, They win the same award. They do. And that's, um, I think, the only 
black woman up for an Oscar this year, I think is Regina King. And I I think it's also for Best Supporting Actress. Yeah. um, For If Beale Street Could Talk. Yeah. Um, Wow. Yeah. So I found it, it was just, for me, it was super interesting in part because I knew nothing about this world. And so it was just Mm -hmm. learning a lot about film and how Hollywood worked in this time, but also that even in her own time, um, she's recognized as this person who has this really complicated legacy because on the one hand, Mm -hmm. she is this trailblazing African-American actor who breaks into the highest tiers of Hollywood, is making major films and is getting really big praise um, in the sort of critical arena for the work that she's doing. And at the same time, that work is mostly playing very stereotypical characters and is in a lot of ways she's in the box that white producers put her in um Mm -hmm. and so a lot of the progressive black community is not happy with the fact that she's not pushing harder for better representation Mm. um and it's just it was really interesting to see those conversations play out in the 30s and 40s because in a lot of ways they're the same conversations that we're having representation in film now, even though the content has gotten better, the conversation hasn't moved super far from the points that Mm. it was in the thirties and forties. I was just struck by my own argument of like not watching birth of a nation because I don't want to be mad for over three hours. And you could make that same argument for gone with wind. Mm -hmm. And yet for some reason it's more palatable to me, which I think is something I just have to think about. But I'm just going to say no one should no one needs to watch Gone with the Wind if they don't want to be mad for 3 hours and I get that. I have watched it many times at this point. I'll probably watch it a lot for the rest of my life just cuz it has a lot of different feelings for me. It's like something I watch with my mom, it's something I watch whenever it's on, it's something I I watch for many reasons, but knowing about her makes me want to watch her different stuff that she did too. Yeah. To try and get a grasp of who she was as a person. It's a shame that we can't see the stuff that she did for black audiences. Yeah. Because I think you would have probably got a different or a more rounded awareness of her yeah. as a person. I would love to get to see some of that. Um, but it, for me, I'm really sort of interested now to go watch some of her work. Um, mm. In particular, the um, the 1936 Showboat production. Um Cause that's something mm, that's that she true. gets a lot of critical praise for um, and is yeah. also not gone with the wind. Um, yeah. Cause also a three hour anything movie for me is a pretty hard no go. It's the Titanic of its time. Do you know what I mean? It did everything fair. You know, it was like technologically advanced. It was topical. It was like a big historical epic. It was, had a woman as the lead who like was unlikable in many ways i i you know it'd be hard to make today i think because she's so awful (laughs) and you know and yeah it's interesting it is um felt like i learned a lot which was a good a good feeling this week yeah hattie mcdaniel i love her yeah Ugh. I don't know how I feel now. I just feel like, oh, God. It's 
complicated, right? Isn't it amazing? Like, it's only 100 years old when you think about it. Film. Mm-hmm. 100-ish. It's 100-ish years old. It's like, it shouldn't be perfect yet, right? Yeah, I mean... It should, it's, it should be flawed still, because, like, that's no time to get it through all of its changes and advances and stuff. Yeah, I mean... But at the same time, can we not just progress a little bit in terms of, like, who can be in a movie and who will watch this movie and, you know, how dare you show that on screen and paint it because I can't watch that. That's, that's, you know, unacceptable. And yet millions of people go see it anyway. I don't know what I'm even talking about anymore. I'm just glad I learned something. Me too. Um, I w- I mean, I was struck by like the, the, in a way that is different from theater, the sort of like film started sort of to your woman as a really radical medium where you could get away with a lot of things. And then mm. as it got more mainstreamed and more commercialized, lost that ability as the studios were pushing to make it more palatable and reach more audiences and make more money um, yeah. in a way that like those market pressures aren't there in the same way for theater. Like yeah. theater gets away with both like more, or at least has the potential to get away with like more radical social commentary when the yeah. period where film isn't. Well, the other thing I find interesting is what that, other podcast does that's um fascinating is the first couple of weeks they were talking about it they they were marked out like the 100 greatest films listed by the afi which you have to be in the afi to vote and they are predominantly like clearly it's all the guys who made movies in the 70s voted on what is the best movies of all time so it's a bunch of Spielbergs and Scorseses and people who were influenced by Spielberg and Scorsese. So it's like all of their movies are on there. Spielberg's on there like three or four times, which I'm not saying he shouldn't be. Don't at me. But <laughs> it's predominantly like, why are there like 20 movies from the 70s out of 100? Out of 100 years? That's too many for one decade. Do you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, there's like... There's no movies by Lois Weber on there, but by God, I mean, I don't know. I honestly don't know if there's any movies by women directors on that list. And you could say, it's because they haven't made any of the best movies of all time, but 20 from the 1970s? Are you kidding? Yeah. Are you kidding? Are you kidding me? That we were just the best at film then? Have you seen those movies? A lot of them are garbage. The French connections on there, that's a piece of crap. I'm sorry. It is. And, you know, I I don't know if Jane Champion's on there. I don't know if, like, Patty Jenkins will ever be on there. I'm I'm getting on a whole different tirade. But it's just kind of like, you can see this kind of thing overtook of, like, whoever's voting on this stupid arbitrary list anyway is, like, clearly of one demographic. Just like how the Oscars decide to vote on people all of a sudden like we hear these movies that no one saw but all of a sudden are getting all these awards because it's it's who's voting you know what i mean yep kind of like our election process now that you think of it whoa i think this is a great place to stop okay sorry i I just i gotta go (laughs) 
I'm mad now. I gotta go take a walk. Great. Let's take a walk. Let's have some more. We'll end it. Okay. Yeah. Bye. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for women you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Jen and co-executive produced by Frankie the Dog. Thank you for listening to Missing History.